If your work had a message, what would you like for that message to say? So my message would say that no act of kindness, no matter how small, is ever wasted. Hey there, thanks for checking out The Best Kind today. This is a series where we learn from Baltimore's helpers and their journeys in kindness. So we look for things that we can kind of pick out from their stories that we can use to make our lives better together. I'm Josh Morgan, and in this episode, I'll be talking with Donna Cobb. Donna's an attorney, and she's represented the state of Maryland, as well as various colleges and universities in the past, including the Cary School of Law at the University of Maryland. She's also been active in several community-based projects in her spare time over the years. But now she's focused on helping formerly incarcerated people or returning citizens to re-enter society. She co-founded this organization called Return Home Baltimore with her husband, Joe Meyerhoff, and their primary mission is to help guide these returning citizens toward the resources that they need to rebuild their lives outside of prison. I'll talk with her about her background and what motivates her to do this work in a few minutes. The Best Kind is on YouTube if you'd like to watch the video version of the show, or if you prefer the audio version, you can check out The Best Kind wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe for new episodes at bestkindpod.com, and you can sign up for the email newsletter while you're there. I'll be using the newsletter to publish updates from our guests, as well as new episodes whenever those become available. So check out bestkindpod.com to sign up. I'm trying to reduce my own social media use. Um, I'm just kind of sour on the idea of social media at the moment. So I'm using the newsletter to share updates from the best kind. So if you'd like to follow along with the show, check out bestkindpod.com and sign up for the newsletter. I'd also like to make an announcement about the best kind. So I've been publishing one episode per month uh, since I started the show. But I have this growing list of people that I would like to talk to in the Baltimore area. And I'm finding that one episode a month just isn't enough. Uh, So as of March 2022, I'm going to be testing out two episodes a month. So look for the next episode of The Best Kind on March 1st. And I'll also have an episode on March 15th. So from here on, I'll be publishing on the 1st and the 15th of the month every month. So if you don't want to miss an episode, check out bestkindpod.com and sign up for the newsletter. But for now, put on this episode in the background of whatever you're up to, and I hope you enjoy the show. Before I play my conversation with Donna, I'd like to pose a thought exercise to you. Just something to think about. What are the things that make your life good? You know, what are the things that make your life worth living? Uh, You know, off the top of my head, I think of my wife. I think of my family. I think of my friends. I think of people I've met through hosting podcasts over the years. I have a good job. Uh, I live in a house in a safe neighborhood. Um, And I, you know, I could keep going and your list may be a little different than mine, but we all have these similar basic conditions that we need to at least be able to pursue a good life. You know, those are, You know, a lot of those are physical needs like food and shelter and clean air. Um, But, you know, in American society, there's also you have to be able to find a a way to support yourself financially. And the exercise I want you to think about is this. What if you were told, you know, maybe a month from now, a couple weeks from now, you know, just some point in, in the near future 
that you'd be losing access to a lot of these things that make your life good. How would you prepare for life on the other side of that? And not that life in prison is good. That's not the comparison I'm making. But the this is often what life is like for people who are leaving prison, you know, especially if they've been in a long time and they haven't been able to adapt to life outside. Like how, just as an example, how would you find a place to stay that first night if you didn't know who to call on or you didn't know where to go? You know, if, if you were kind of walking around that afternoon after you just got out and you felt hungry, but you didn't have a debit card or you didn't have cash in your pocket, how would you get food? How would you feed yourself? How, you know, how do you even get money? It You can go apply for a job, but, you know, how do you put prison time on a resume or a job application? Most places also require you to apply online now, too. You know, I think about I worked briefly at a job placement center in another state uh, several years ago, and there were people that I helped. They would come in to use our computers at this facility. And there was one older man I remember helping. He didn't know how to type in a website address. I tried to teach him how to type the at symbol for his email address. You know, I told him you have to hold the shift key and push the number two. And that's how you get the at sign. And, you know, he, it took him a long time to get that and it was frustrating for him, but you know, those are the types of challenges that returning citizens face. They, they face a lot of similarities, um, to people, you know, there's a lot of things that we take for granted, you know, just living in society every day that someone that's been removed from society doesn't, they don't always have the information they need to pursue some of these things that they need just to build a basic life for themselves. But the point I'm getting to is that, you know, our culture generally treats people in these circumstances in one of two ways. The first is the punitive approach. And generally speaking, that's, that sort of assumes, well, that person did something you know, they did something wrong to be in that situation. So, you know, they put themselves in that position and now they need to figure out, uh, figure it out on their own. The second is the restorative approach. And that looks beyond the black and the white of whatever the offense might've been that the person committed. I mean, sure. They, you know, the person may have been convicted of something in their past. They may have a criminal history, but they still deserve a good life. You know, what are the factors that led them to be in that position in the first place? And how can we as a society, how can we in our communities help them not only avoid being in that position again, where they might commit something offensive, but how can we help them have a good life too? To me, people like Donna Cobb embody that second approach, that restorative approach. She and her husband, Joe, recognized the need for something like Return Home Baltimore in the Baltimore area. So they started the organization in 2019. And since then, they've launched uh, the website returnhome.org, where uh, they collect resources and information for these returning citizens to access. Uh, the site provides links to local agencies and organizations that offer services to this population. And I think the real value of it is that it's collecting a lot of different things all in one place. It makes it easy to find and access some of these things. Whereas in the past, it was, 
you know, it was hard to track all these things down or access was just limited because they were hard to find. And the categories on the website are things like food, housing, uh, legal services, health, education, you know, on and on. There's a lot of different categories and it's, it's all presented very, uh, straightforward. I think easy to navigate. Um, but Donna's quick to point out that, you know, return home Baltimore doesn't necessarily provide any of these services. She's just providing information on how to get access to these services. And, you know, Despite that, she's still dedicating herself to getting the word out about these services and, you know, helping people find out what's available to the point where she works one on one with individuals uh, on her own time just to make sure they find what they need so that they can reenter society and start rebuilding their lives. I I appreciate that Donna made time to talk with me because she is busy with a lot of different things, including Return Home Baltimore. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Her uh, her supervisor, Mia, is a white cat, and she shows up later to share her opinions. So be sure to listen for Mia, too. Here's Donna Cobb. I, I thought I would start by explaining how I discovered uh, you and your organization, Return Home Baltimore. Um, I was looking because I, I think you and I both know and probably a lot of people that are listening uh there's been this discussion in Baltimore for several years about how resources in the city uh, are in silos mm-hmm. and it meaning that, you know, there's a lot of resources, a lot of information out there, but the people that produce it often control it and they don't necessarily know that they're kind of holding on to it. So I started looking around thinking, well, you know, like how can we get some of these things out and, you know, start centralizing them and, you know, just in the process of Googling, I, I discovered your website, Return Home Baltimore. And it, you know, I, I was just so elated to see that, you know, you, you've been doing this work already, trying to pull together resources for returning citizens. And I love that term, by the way. Um, so, yeah, like I, I was just hoping we could talk about, you know, how, how you got started um, sure. with that project. And then also kind of like your backstory leading up to why you got interested in that work. Um, I, I, first question I have for you is how long have you been in Baltimore in the Baltimore area? I moved to Baltimore in 1986. Okay. After my then husband, now ex-husband, but still a good friend. We went city shopping. We lived in Manhattan. We knew it was going to be too expensive for us on the long, in the long term. So we went shopping. We went to three cities where we had a friend, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Winston-Salem. And we picked Baltimore. And we moved here in 1986 into Charles Village on Able Avenue. And nice. we lived in Charles Village for a long time. So that's how we came to Baltimore. And you decided to stay once you got here. Yeah, we love it. That's awesome. Uh, how, let's see. I, I think you're originally from New Hampshire. Is that correct? Now my parents live in New Hampshire. I grew up in upstate New York, outside of Utica, New York. Okay. And, you know, went through high school there, went to college in New England, went to law school in New York City, and then came to Baltimore. So okay, okay. that's the thumbnail. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so how was how was life growing up? Uh, did did you have uh, would you say you had a good uh, childhood? Um, how, well, I how was... think, yeah, I mean, I, so I think when I was looking at the questions you posed, um, 
In the early part of my life, my parents separated and they eventually came back together some years later. But I think that had a huge impact on why I always seem to have identified with the underdog, even as a small child. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I just felt there was something about that experience that really touched me in a way that made me maybe feel for other people who were lonely or sad. Mm. You know, like what I was as a little girl, sad, you know, about that part of my life. I mean, I otherwise had a perfectly wonderful set of, you know, parents and siblings and, you know, all of that. But that was a that was a hard thing for me. And and I, I just that's the only thing I can trace it back to either that and then just I think watching. So I, obviously I was young in the 60s. And I'm very aware of what was going on between the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, the riots, the civil rights movement. I really just didn't understand what the issue was with skin color as a child. I was like, wow, I don't get it. So I Did you I have really, a lot of exposure to people from other backgrounds and, and you know, different ethnicities and things nope. while you were growing up? No, I did not. Okay. I did not. I, I don't think I think I, the first black person I met was a counselor at camp when I was like 12 or something, oh, you know, wow. and I was no. So, I mean, I grew up in a very modest neighborhood and for the most part um, in those early years. But I think just being really aware and it's so interesting when you think about it, it's like so for me, that was normal. The 60s was normal. That was what I knew, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so um, between the music. Woodstock, you know, all the tumult of the 60s. I think just it was just in the background all the time. You know, my parents watched the news every night. Um, So I think that seeped into me somehow. Keep in mind, there wasn't even the Internet then. So it was just like what was on TV on those three channels. Um, and I didn't have politically involved parents or super progressive parents. So I really think it was what I absorbed from television and what was going on in the world. Huh. That's interesting that you developed your mindset, you know, just from uh, consuming three channels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm reading, I read a lot, not that I read about current events, uh, but I also just really identified with, with, underdog people and from, from an early age i wanted to be a lawyer for that reason oh okay well that was gonna be my next question was you know eventually you you went through school and then you went to college uh did you go to college of you know thinking that you wanted to pursue a career in law or did you have something else in mind when you went i did and then i did all these law related things in college and then i took the lsats and i didn't do very well and i thought well maybe i'm not smart enough so I um, took some time off. I actually went and worked in a automobile factory for a summer after college, which was a real eye opener to work on an assembly line. I've done that too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, and then I went to New York city and trained as a paralegal and worked as a paralegal just to see like, maybe this isn't for me. And then I did it and I thought, Oh, I could do this. So (laughs) I studied a little bit more for the LSATs did much better, got into law school and, um, decided, you know, became a lawyer. What type of law did you uh, first start pursuing? Because I've learned over, you know, talking with several uh, people in the legal profession over the years that, you know, there are different types of law. Oh, yeah. Was there one that you had an eye on? 
Well, well, so initially I wanted to help poor people, but then I had student debt. Sound familiar? Um, The other thing that happened was I got really sick in my first year of law school around exam time, and I was too embarrassed to talk to anybody about it at law school. So I didn't really, I wasn't able to study. So I took my exams with like fevers and I didn't do well at all. Oh gosh. So my first year law school grades were not very good. In fact, I almost, I almost didn't make it. I, and where the kind, my, my, where someone was so kind to me, I went to all my professors and said, could you reread my exam and just make sure I didn't miss anything? And my property professor reread my exam and found that she had left out some points, gave me the points, and I was able to stay in law school. Oh, good. So, But, you know, grades are really important in law school. So because I had that bad experience, you know, I didn't have tons of um, opportunities. So I worked at the firm that I was at paralegal at. And um, that was my my first job. But that whole experience really informed the kind of dean of students I was when I was the dean of students at the University of Maryland School of Law, you know, 30 Mm. years later. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all have those people that have informed our perspectives on humanity. So I'm glad you had that so that you can kind of pay it forward a little bit when you you had students that were relying on you. Yeah. That's awesome. So my first few years as a lawyer, I worked in private firms and learned and really what I'm grateful for is I learned that the skill of trying a case, how to do uh, all the skills that are required of a lawyer in the courtroom. I learned that. And then from there, I went to work in the university. I mean, at the Maryland Attorney General's office for almost 17 years. While I was there, I represented for three years various agencies of the Department of Health and Department of Health. So state hospitals where where people with mental illness are are living, um, a whole range of interesting public health legal issues I never even knew existed. And then after that, I, I spent the next 13, 14 years representing all public higher ed institutions in Maryland. So the University System of Maryland campuses, Morgan State, Baltimore City Community College, St. Mary's College of Maryland. So I, What types you, of cases? So I was a higher ed lawyer. Um, well, like any company or business, they get sued for all kinds of reasons. But the most interesting cases were civil rights cases, race discrimination cases. Um, for example, I had a, a white applicant denied admission to the University of Maryland Medical School who alleged if he had been black, he would have been admitted. Mm. And, um, you know, that was a, that identical case went to the Supreme Court out of the University of Michigan so First Amendment cases, um, you know, when you represent a state agency, the Constitution applies to how you conduct your business. And so you have to abide by the Constitution in terms of how you treat people and and the laws that you regulations that you enforce. And so it just I say it's practicing constitutional law every day. <laughs> I so. see. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I can imagine. And it sounds like also in the course of, you know, as you're coming up in your career that you were exposed to several different social issues that you may not have had direct exposure to before. Um, were there any particular issues that stood out to you as you were moving through your career? So I think for me, the admissions case at the University of Maryland, which happened in the late 90s, was an opportunity for me to really dive into the whole affirmative action 
arena and understanding what it really was about, what the benefits of affirmative action were in higher education, what the research showed, what the experts were saying. And it was, you know, I learned a lot from from that experience. How did you eventually uh, become affiliated with criminal justice issues? Uh, What was it that first sparked your interest in helping people affected by the criminal justice system? Two things. Um, In 1996, we had this giant blizzard. And what was common in those days in Charles Village is folks would come and knock on your door and ask to shovel your sidewalk for money. Mm. And uh, that happened one day with a gentleman, African-American gentleman, who, who we became lifelong friends with after that. And it was through his many experiences as a black man in Baltimore that my family and I learned a lot about the differences in how black people were treated from white people. You know, for example, if he was walking across Hopkins campus, sometimes he'd get hassled by their security and asked to leave. And there were just, the rules were different for him. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so, you know, so that was through a friendship. Um, the other interest came, I guess, in uh, the work I did with returning citizens as a volunteer, which started 10, 10 or 12 years ago. And how that happened was I'm in a group called the Baltimore Women's Giving Circle, and we give grants to organizations that somehow benefit women and children. And we gave a grant to the Goucher College Prison Education Partnership. Goucher holds classes in the men's and women's prison in Jessup. So I couldn't go to the meeting that when they handed out assignments, but because I was working, but they said, Donna, you get to go out to the prison and check up on our grant and see if, if they're how it's going. So I went out there on a cold February night with one of the professors from Goucher and I was completely blown away mm-hmm. by what I saw with the impact that the education was having on the women in the program and not only on them, but, you know, they call their kids or their grandkids and, and do homework with them or it'd say, you've got to stay in school. So there was this incredible ripple effect. So I got involved in the nonprofit that supported that work. And then over time, the director of the program started asking me, she knew I was a higher ed lawyer, if I could help her with some things. And then next thing you know, she said, hey, so-and-so's getting out. Would you meet with him and help him figure out how to continue his, his higher education? Would you help him do this? Would you help him figure out that? So that's when I started meeting with returning citizens one-on-one, you know, maybe like 10 or 12 years ago. And it was through that experience the one-on-one experience I had, you know, where I really encountered the challenges and barriers that people face coming out of prison. Mm-hmm. Many, so many. Yeah. It's <laughs> interesting. I was just realizing as, as you're talking, it, you know, you, you were originally working in higher ed and then you started seeing criminal justice, like these two issues sort of, or these two fields sort of converging. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that seems to be kind of the point where you're at now where, you know, these things have kind of met in the middle and you're standing right there and you have the ability to to help lots of people that may be caught, you know, or not necessarily caught in higher ed, but caught in the criminal justice system. So, yeah. Yeah. And I also at University of Maryland, I ran a program that are called the Justice Advice Project, which was free legal advice for people who couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. Nearly free legal advice for anybody who walked in the door and um, certainly ran into a number of people. We did a lot of expungement work, and that's where we learned about the impact that a criminal record has on someone's ability to get a job, to get a place to live. 
So I was, I was experiencing this in, from different fronts, you know, through professionally. And then in my, in my volunteer work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I didn't know about expungement until a few years ago. I volunteered at an event for the United way mm-hmm. and uh, the event, I, I think it was at the convention center, the Baltimore convention center. And they had several booths set up for different services where people right. could come that needed, you know, assistance of various kinds. And I just remember walking over uh, by the uh, booth for uh, an organization that was offering expungement services. Mm-hmm. And the line was one of the longest in the building. And that sort of opened my eyes to what people experience and, and what you were saying, how how having a criminal record can affect people's you know livelihoods, their, their right. abilities to, you know, just build a lie for themselves. I mean, I do one anecdote. I remember this gentleman came into our clinic one day asking for expungement and, you know, on Maryland, you can pull up people's criminal records easily. Mm-hmm. And I pulled up his record and it was what he had one charge first degree murder, but it was dismissed, but it mm. was still out there. Interesting. You know, so it was dismissed and then, you know, he wasn't convicted. He, you know, so he goes to apply for a job and someone sees that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, that makes me curious. Uh, I haven't looked into this. I should have before we talked. Um, is Maryland a Baltimore, a band the box state or is Baltimore City a band the box Baltimore state? Baltimore City is. And I believe Maryland is now, too. Mm-hmm. OK. And what I mean that for that by that is uh, removing the checkbox on right. a job application where right. you don't have to indicate that you have a criminal record or been convicted right. of something. Yeah. Right. But you have to you have to answer the question in an interview, but you don't have to put it on the application. Okay. Good to know. Uh, I had a question while you were talking a moment ago um, that came to mind and from your experience and talking with, you know, various clients and these different projects and programs that you've been working with, what is your impression of what life is like for uh, a returning citizen? I mean, uh, and generally speaking, what kinds of challenges do they face? Well, I have this really fabulous book called Halfway Home by this gentleman named Reuben Jonathan Miller. And I'm just going to quote him because it's about life after incarceration. And he said, returning from incarceration is like being in prison without the bars because there are there are that many barriers that you have to confront when you get out including, you know, just trying to get a job, trying to get your ID, just trying to get an ID, mm-hmm. um, trying to get housing. And then there's the trauma of having been in prison and the trauma that maybe someone experienced before they even went to prison. Um, there's just so many barriers and hurdles and stigmas <laughs> that, Exists. It's we, we we really ask an awful lot of people coming home without giving them much support in many cases. Yeah, uh, I've heard it. Uh, I've heard it described as you know walking out of a prison or a, another f- type facility, and you know just having the clothes you walked in with, or maybe some other minor possessions. And I mean that's it. It's like you're on the street you know, standing in front of the facility, it's like, what, what do you do? And right. if you don't have a support system, like someone there to pick you up and, you know, someone to stay with, it's like, it, it makes me think of that movie, uh, the Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the, the character's name, but it was the older man, uh, 
at some point in the movie, he was released after being in prison for decades. And right. he just like, he went to work as like a, a, a bagger at a grocery store. And it's like, he just, no one taught him how to live outside of that system. And right. I can imagine it being the same for a lot of the people that you're trying to reach, you know, mm-hmm. they, they just, they don't have the resources or the means, but even though they, they want to, you know, build a better life for themselves right. and kind of move on. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. Really hard. It, was there a moment or can you recall maybe a specific case or a, like a memory where you got the idea for uh return home Baltimore and pulling together resources to help this population? So it was a kind of a cumulative experience in that I worked, you know, helping people connect with resources. I'd run this program at the University of Maryland Law School. I knew the resources were siloed. I mean, I had the experience myself. My husband and I, I started bringing my now husband to meet with these folks and to help them navigate. And, and he and I wanted to, you know, we, we were like, we have to do something about this. Mm-hmm. This is really wrong. Um, how can we best help? So we spent a year actually talking to returning citizens that we know to the mon- some nonprofits to serve them and said, Hey, we want to do something, but we're, you know, we're in our sixties. We're not really that place where we're going to start a nonprofit with staff and programs And at the end of that year, what we concluded was, right, information is siloed. It's not in one place. People are looking all over for it. So we said, let's try a website. And we went back to the people we talked to. And we said, what do you think about this idea of a website? And it was kind of sad how many people, oh, my God, that'd be amazing. We're like, really? um, And so then we spent a year (laughs) doing the website, designing. We we picked Fearless here in Baltimore as a really terrific um, company that helped us develop the website, but it took I think a I've year. I've seen their name. Yeah. Fearless. Yeah. They're, you see them all over the place. Now they're a local company with uh, local roots, UMBC alums and terrific group. And, you know, they have a, they have a, a mission that is very, public social, like they software with a soul is one of their taglines, you know? Mm. So we really, but we spent a year because we had to get data of the resources that was trusted. And, and then the design of the website, we wanted it to be beautiful, but simple. That's something I appreciate about it. It's very intuitive, easy to use. Yeah. So I like that. It took a year and then the pandemic happened. So we were hoping to have a big, you know, splash when we launched it. But, you know, we launched it in August 2020. And I've spent a lot of time since then just meeting people and talking to people. If I hear about, like I just heard yesterday, oh, there's a church who wants to start a reentry program. So I've already emailed the reverend, you know, just just talking to anybody and everybody who is cares about the issue, who's trying to work on the issue and just have met some really great people and have added some super resources to the, to the website. That's awesome. And then, you know, big part is like getting people to know about it, you know, so that they get, so it's, so it's used. Yeah. Yes. Right. Have you made any headway? Cause what I'm imagining is it would be so cool if, you know, someone was as exiting the criminal justice system, becoming a returning citizen and, there was someone to provide like, you know, here's what you can do next. Have you made any headway in providing 
returning citizens with that information as they exit the system? Well, the people of public safety and correctional services tell me that the people who work with people on the inside have access to the website and know about it. Oh, that's good. I have worked. So there's a there's a, a division of the prison system called Maryland Correctional Enterprises. And that's the part of the prison that where um, people in, in prison can work making furniture for the state, making flags, license plates, you know, all my business cards when I worked in the state were made in prison. And so that reentry coordinator from MCE emails me all the time. Hey, I got a man coming to Baltimore. Can you recommend, uh, you know, a housing spot? So, so yes, um, we, we have Google analytics. We know how many people use the website every month. We know where they go. We know if they're a new user or a returning user. We don't have a um, like a survey on the website so that when you click off, you get asked questions. We've kind of avoided that. Mm. We do have a little feedback button that someone could press if they wanted to. So we don't have data on who's you like who the users are, what it's getting them. Is it really helpful? The only feedback I get is from people who tell me they use it and tell me it's helpful and tell me they rely on it. So that's what we know at the, this point. I see. And of course, there's always room to, you know, develop further features. And well, we're um, working on that. Yep. Right. Uh, are there any specific stories that you have where you've heard of people discovering your website and, you know, it, it being able to help them uh, find the things that they need to get back on their feet? Yes. So recently I got an email from somebody, um, a returning citizen from federal prison who was in the, um, in a transitional house somewhere. And he sent an email to, you know, info at returnhome.org with a question and a cell phone number. And I called him. He was like, really? Well, <laughs> like he couldn't believe it. Wow. And he was looking for um, some help with, I can't remember exactly what it was, but anyway, I connected it with the people I know. And he was just blown away. You know, um, that someone actually called them, someone followed up. And um, so I have a number of stories like that. Um, That's awesome. Similar to that, where people send an email to an info at don't know what they're going to get. And then I'm kind of an obsessive email checker. So mm-hmm. I respond. Excellent customer service. <laughs> and there's, you know, it's just me and Joe, my other half. It's not like we have a staff or anything. So, right. No, um, I'm glad you do that. Yeah. The other way, so so I have one pagers that I've sent out to, you know, I'm gonna I'm getting ready to do it again. Like everyone on the city council, people in the Baltimore City delegation, um, the mayor's office, um, you know, so constantly making people who are constituent-based people who often get calls from people looking for services so that they know about it. Um, so yeah, so I'm always I'm always I go to these fairs, these resource fairs, and I'm, I'm just always out and about trying to get the word out. And then, and also trying to meet people and maybe find out about new resources that we could put on the site. For sure. You know, we, we've mentioned already about silos in the city. Have you given any thought to, and I know you're just one person and you represent one organization, but ha- have you given any thought to how to help consolidate some of these resources because, and I'll explain kind of my perspective and why I asked this question. Um, so I'm a data analyst and 
I was recently, you know, I mentioned I was looking for, you know, how can we help kind of centralize some of these resources in the city? And I was looking on the IRS website mm-hmm. and the IRS collects data on tax exempt organizations and they uh, provide data sets um, mm-hmm. for these organizations across the country. And you can, if you know how to read the data, you can narrow it down to, you know, state of Maryland and then like right. those that are located in Baltimore. And then you can look further at like the the uh, taxonomy codes, the categories that these organizations mm-hmm. declare that they're in. And I, I counted 58 organizations that said that they were in uh, located in Baltimore that were in the criminal or crime and legal defense uh, mm-hmm. category. Okay. So that's, that's a lot of different organizations and that's not necessarily a bad thing. They all have their different roles that they play. Some are specific to neighborhoods, some are specific right. to churches and things, but it goes back to that, or that problem of these organizations all kind of working independently of one another. When in some cases it would be nice if they could kind of put their heads together and, you know, share what they've learned with each other, what's working, what's not. Do you kind of see maybe eventually like helping kind of lead some of that work? We're on it. Let me tell you. (laughs) So when I was talking to people, you know, I would talk to, so I was talking to the head of Turnaround Tuesday, which is a great workforce development program. As well, you know about FACE, right? Freedom Advocates Selling Ex-Offenders. And I said to the FACE, do you know about Turnaround Tuesday? Like, uh, no, we don't know each other. It's like, are you kidding me? So then I brought them together. You guys got to, you know, yeah, I'm always doing this. You all need to know each other. So um, I, we were able to meet with the um, U.S. Attorney for Maryland in the summertime through just another contact I had. And, mm-hmm. and they have a whole reentry coordination office. And they, you know, saw what we were doing. We love what you're doing. They said, how can we help? (laughs) We said, you could stand up an organization that brings all these people together who are working in reentry, who don't know each other, and they're doing it. So it's now the Maryland State Alliance for Returning Citizens was formed in August. We have about 25 members from all the various parts of the state. It's just getting off the ground and it's being coordinated by the um, reentry office and the U.S. attorney's office um, for the very reason that you state that that we're we're so much better when we work together. We can learn from each other. We can help each other, you know, identify areas where there's duplication, where we might apply for a grant together. I mean, there's just so many things that can be done and can be done better as a group. So yes, I definitely had that experience <laughs> and um, I'm really happy that we found the resource who was willing to pull us together. That's awesome. I, I got to say, hearing you say that, like I, that's kind of what I, I believe, what I I don't know what my role is yet, but I, I like the idea of trying to help, you know, bring people together, like look for opportunities in my network and try to help, you know, say, Hey, you know, I, I know you're good at this. Maybe this opportunity would be good for you, or maybe you should talk to this person. They're good at this. And it, it just, I felt in my heart, like physically, like I'm just so happy to hear you say that you're trying to, 
mm-hmm. help bring people together like that and, and put their heads together towards um, some of these issues. So I appreciate that you're doing that. I mean, have you gone to any of the hackathons or anything like that in Baltimore where people come together with your kind of background and look at how they could solve problems or anything like that? Because that happens. I've been to Baltimore day to day a few times, which happens, uh, it usually, usually happens in July. Um, right. I haven't been to a hackathon yet, but yeah. I should look into that. Yeah. That's a good idea. Because yeah. the same issue exists too for data in the city, because like the health department, for example, collects their own data right. and, you know, several different types of data, but then they don't necessarily talk to uh, the, the area hospitals. I mean, they do in some ways, but in other ways, you know, sometimes all the hospitals are collecting their own data and yeah, they, they don't know like when they have the same patients, for example. Well, and you must know about Baltimore neighborhood indicators, BNIA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, so how, what makes you excited for the future of return home Baltimore? Like what, what's coming up that, that you're eager to. Well, Right now we're working on um, finishing up the creation of a web scraper that will keep the site current, updated, so that data doesn't get old. Um, mm. That's been a big project. Yeah, that sounds like it. Yeah. Um, and I'm for the site, we've um, the University of Maryland School of Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic is helping us with getting trademark copyright protection and drafting license agreements in the event we're able to ever license the platform to other counties. Oh, interesting. So that they wouldn't have to spend the money to design it, could just get the template, put their data in and have it for their county. So that's that's kind of a dream come true. We'll have to see if it happens. Mm-hmm. But we're trying to get set up so that if anyone wanted to do that, and we wouldn't be doing it to try to make money ourselves. We don't get paid, but it would be a way to keep the website current and to maybe expand it. Um, Help make it more sustainable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, um, I have two success story videos there now. I'm I'm, I'm looking to make more. Um, Working, not so much related to the site, but just in general, working with um, the business community and others to support the concept of second chance hiring. Uh, for returning citizens and getting the word out about why it's uh, a good idea and how to do it right. There's mm-hmm. a great book called Untapped Talent that that I recommend anybody interested in this reading, how second chance hiring works for your business and your community. The first piece of advice being to partner with a great nonprofit who is experienced in working with um, returning citizens and can support them in their employment. Um, and housing is a huge problem, huge problem. I can see that. Yeah. So we have a little project that's in the pipeline, but I'm not going to say anything about it just now. Maybe we can come back to you in a year. Sure. <laughs> it might be um, some, you know, a housing solution for people coming out who don't have anywhere to go. That's very community based and supportive. That's great. So, yeah, again, just just connecting with people and bringing people together and brainstorming on how to find funding for these organizations that are doing this important work on on really tight budgets. It's, you know, we just really need some vision. And the state of Maryland's getting all this money, all this federal money coming Mm -hmm. 
And it would just be really great if our next governor and our next controller and our next set of leaders really had some vision about how to how to use it in a way that would benefit returning citizens, but would also at the same time reduce recidivism and save the state a lot of money locking people up. Right. Where did the term return citizens come from? No, I don't know. I um, I don't know if that was something you no, or maybe no, it, people you know came up with. So it used to be right ex felon. Then it became formerly incarcerated, and then it became returning citizens. And I can't, I don't take credit for it, and I can't okay. remember where I first saw it. I wasn't sure, but I, I really like that term because it does it, 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 it extends a form of compassion. I think you know rather than labeling somebody by okay. you know what what they've done in the past. So. Right. Yeah. I was just curious. I didn't, I didn't yeah. know if you know, knew the history. Of I, should, I should find out. <laughs> um, so we have been talking a lot about Return Home Baltimore, the organization itself. We've been talking about the work you've been doing. But I'd like to ask about the population that you're serving, these returning citizens. What would you like people to know about them that maybe I, I guess we we touched on this a little bit already, but. I guess there's a lot that, you know, the rest of us who aren't returning citizens don't know about them. What what are some things that you would like for more people to know about these uh, this group? Well, you know, so Baltimore gets several thousand Baltimore City, Baltimore County gets several thousand people returned home every year. And so they're not a monolith. You know, they're people with individual needs and individual life stories. So I can. I mean, I, I think about the few people I know. I'm involved in a project called Prepare for Parole, and I'm helping a woman prepare for her parole hearing, hmm. which is coming up in April. How do you and help her prepare for that? So I'm putting together what's called the parole packet. I'm putting together, a rem- I'm asking her to prepare a remorse statement, uh, a life story a letter of introduction to the parole commission. And then I've gathered letters of support from her loved ones, from other friends, um, letters from the place where she'll go. If she gets out for, she's been sober for 10 years where she can keep her sobriety going, where she'll be working or interning. And you put it all together in a packet that makes a great case for why this person should be released early. Um, she has all these certificates from programs she attended while in prison. She has no infractions. So it's, it's advocacy, mm. but it's, it's putting it together in a nice, easy to digest, easy to find document, and then working with her family members to participate in a phone call with one of the parole commissioners before the parole hearing, and then preparing her for the hearing herself. She, she will be there by herself, but we're able, I'm able to speak with her on the phone and prepare her for the hearing. Just like I would prepare a witness for trial. Like here are the questions, you know, how are you going to answer this? How are you going to answer that? Um, So, but what to know about folks, if they've been in for a long time, like 10 years or 20 years, I mean, Think about all the changes in our society that have happened that people are, they're going to be foreign to people. I remember meeting with one gentleman and like showing him like, here's how you set a contact up in your phone. Here's how you make a voicemail. I mean, so just computers, technology, 
Um, even the fact that you need to put your, your foot on the brake to start a car. You didn't mm. used to have to do that 15 years ago. Right. <laughs> you can't start a car now unless you put your foot on the brake, right? Yeah, life skills. Yeah, I guess there are some things that well, we take for granted now. There's those those things that we don't even think about. Um, and then there's 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 just a completely different, you know, set of responsibilities that come, you know, in prison, you're 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 told everywhere to go, when to go, where to be. Um, that's going to be different on the outside. So I, I can't, it's I don't I don't want to generalize because for every person, it's going to be different. Sure. But it's going to be challenging for everybody because of the stigma and, um, and COVID has made things really hard. Oh yeah. I can imagine that. But I think, you know, I think everyone has a story. Everyone has, uh, everyone's human, (laughs) you know, and I'm all for second chances for everybody. The underdogs, like you were talking about before. (laughs) I I like the idea of, uh, creating more content around stories for for these people that you've been helping, I, I think that will go a long way to helping humanize. Um, and you know that could that could also help get the word out about Return Home Baltimore and the services you're providing. You know, like here's an example of someone. You know, their story is more complicated than you know they did something to you know that that earned them a place or that got them a place in the criminal justice system. Like they they have a broader life than that. And, you know, here's, here's how they've turned things around. They're back, you know, and here's how, you know, we've helped them find these resources to help them kind of succeed. And, you know, they're doing well now. I, I would love to see more stories like that, to be honest, rather than just, you know, what's going wrong with the criminal justice system. Yeah. Well, that's why. So I don't know if you had a chance to watch the two success stories on the website. I encourage you to do it. They're really moving. And, um, yes. And PBS has has done a whole thing on on returning citizens um, that's been really good in the last year or so. But you're right. There's not enough um, positive storytelling going on for sure. Mm-hmm. How would you classify success in terms of you know helping this group of returning citizens in Baltimore City? Success really would be, I guess, for me, hearing from people that they've used it, that has been helpful to them, that um, they got they, you know, they found a place to live or they connected with a mentor or got a, a bus pass or something that that made life a little easier for them, you know, having returned home. Um, that, that would be my definition of success, yeah. really. And and, I can see that being personally gratifying too, because that would kind of refill you, you know, emotionally, spiritually, knowing that you've, you've been able to make a difference, you know, in, in these people's lives. I hope, I mean, I'm, I'm, listen, it's just information. I, you know, it, it's, it's not a roof over anyone's head. It's, it's not a job, but it, that's fair. Yeah. You know, I mean, so it's, it's just really hopefully helpful to people. You know, one thing that the folks on the, in the success videos say is that there's so many people who want to help you, but you have to go for it. You have to pick up the phone and you're going to get no, and you're going to get no, and you're going to get no, but you got to keep at it. The lady Martine Hughes says, you just got to get as many pieces of paper. You had like as many certificates and as many things that give you a credential, you know, um, uh, and, and she's a great success story. So, so yeah, so that's our definition of success. And, and, and if other people could start using it because so many people wish they could have something like this mm. and, 
you know, the Department of Public Safety and Correctional Services told us whenever we, three years ago, oh, we're doing this. We've got, we've got to do the same thing. We're like, okay, well, let's work together. They're like, uh, uh, well, you should just all go make your website. I see. You know, and so we did. And they were, they were good enough because they gave us their information. Department of Parole approves certain resources. And so they let us know which ones they approve of. So we have that on our website because a parole officer is only going to approve um, a parolee use certain resources. And so at least you can oh, identify okay. those. I didn't our- realize that. Mm-hmm. Makes sense though. Now that you explain it that way. Yeah. That, so that was something I learned as well. So yeah, that's the extent that, you know, other people could use it. I've, I've had, a, I've really enjoyed talking to people around the country who have found the website who are either trying to do something similar in Wisconsin or New Orleans or Seattle. And I was just wondering about that. This seems like a good model that could be you know replicated elsewhere. Like you were mentioning before, maybe helping build the template for that. Yeah. So it's just been, it's nice been talking to people who are trying to do the same thing. And another, a, a fellow out in Wisconsin and I were saying, well, maybe we should just try to have a zoom call with all of us, you know, just to kind of learn from each other. And yeah understand what other resources are out there. Just this good old silo problem, you know, so. Maybe an informal work group. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I have a segment I like to do with everybody I talk to called uh, giving your flowers. Okay. And it's, it's where I ask, you know, who are the people in your life that have helped you become who you are today? So I just wanted to, to turn that question to you. Um, who who are the people in your background that helped inform who you are today? Well, I've thought about that, you know, um, and of course, you know, I look at my parents who um, are definitely a big part of who I am today. Um, my dad owned his own business and just worked very hard his whole life. What kind of business? It was an industrial laundry, which is um, something my grandfather, who emigrated here from Scotland, started in their garage in like the 1930s. Industrial laundry. It's a a business that owns. So the clothing that people wear at jobs. um, Oh, I see. Like laundry for industry. Uniforms. Right. Like um, all kinds of different amenities like. When you come in on a rainy day, there's a rug there. My father owned and leased those kind of walk-off rugs. All these things you never really think about. Was Were there any people you crossed paths with that have left you with a sense of kindness that you still carry with you? I mean, I think of the professor who regretted my exam in law school as just being someone who really was very kind to me. Well, my current husband is very kind to me. He did, he did a he's done Good job, Joe. Very Joseph. So very, I think he did something for me that was the kind, I think I would say is the kindest thing that I can recall anyone doing for me at my father died in 2016. And we had a memorial service for him about a month later up in New Hampshire. And, you know, it was a pretty moving day. And I came back um, to my mom's house and I walk in the door and Joe was there. (laughs) I was like, Mm. so he just got on a plane, flew up from Maryland hung out with me for the day and went back because he just knew it was going to be that kind of a day for me. And he just mm. showed up for it. Oh, I know. It was just like, I just burst into tears. It was just really yeah. so thoughtful. Very and, sweet. Um, sweet. So yeah. 
I, I have been the beneficiary of much kindness from my friends. I have a tremendous circle of friends. It's really hard to like think of one thing. I can imagine, right? Yeah. I feel lucky in many ways. Many, many ways. Yeah. Uh, another way I would ask you if you if you could give your flowers are are and I know we could probably talk all night about different organizations in Baltimore that are inspiring to us and different people. Is there like one or two particular organizations or maybe one or two particular people that you think are doing good work that you'd like to kind of give a shout out to? Well, let's see. So one organization that I really love is called Turnaround Tuesday. Mm. And um, I was just on a phone call with them yesterday. They just do great work on the east side and west side of Baltimore, helping uh, returning citizens and other underemployed people um, get back on their feet. I mean, it's it's not just here's how you do your resume and here's how you interview. It's it's really walking people through the process of sort of reclaiming their lives and and building them back up and then staying with them through their journey as they become employed and thereafter. And they're just a really wonderful organization. So that would be one organization. I think Antoine Quarles is a, is a person I'd give a shout out to. He was written up in the Baltimore Sun two days ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, he runs a program called HOPE, Helping Oppressed People Everywhere. He's a returning citizen who has just done really terrific work on behalf of returning citizens in Baltimore and is about to do even more work. And I really admire him and, and love giving him a shout out. That's but there are so many I could say. For sure. Yes. <laughs> the character I was thinking about from the Shawshank Redemption was named Brooks. Uh, I haven't seen the movie in a while, so it took me a little bit to think about it. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you to Donna Cobb for making time to talk with me. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Dean Donna, D-A-W-N-A. I'd also encourage you to check out returnhome.org. It, it really is a cool website. And if you know anybody that could use those services, uh, please share uh, so that you know we can get the word out about it. Uh, Return Home Baltimore is on Facebook if, if you search for Return Home Baltimore. And you can find them on Twitter at Return Home Be More. Like I mentioned at the top of the episode, I'll be back on March 1st with a new one. And I'm going to try to tweak my, uh, my space here uh, between now and then. So it might look a little different next time. Uh, if you have any lighting tips or how to light a video properly, uh, please let me know. Because I'm, I'm trying out some new things. And I don't know if they're working. But if you have any feedback, uh, I'd love to hear from you. Until then, I appreciate you being out there and thank you for being kind today. Take care.